The Silly Goose Gang Podcast. Silly Goose Gang, episode 41. And it is a real pleasure for me and Chris to be joined this evening by Nick Lavery, um, US Army Green Beret. So, uh, Nick, thank you very much for joining us today. Hey, guys, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Um, just uh, admiring your uh, your lovely American flag there in the background. It's uh, quite a thing. Um, so yeah, thanks thanks for taking the time to to, to join us, Nick. Um, I think you know reading your story, <coughs> it's quite funny. You know, you know I think you are one of you know the poster guy for not everybody's equal. <laughs> you know, we never, we, never live in, we never live in a world where, you know, everybody has to be the same. And then I read a guy like you and go, oh, I, you know, I'm not the same as that guy. We're different things. <laughs> so uh, thank you for making me feel like a, a bitch. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've, uh, I've, I've been said, I've been told things along those lines usually happens in the weight room or when we're training and whatnot. And, Usually it goes one of two ways. One way is what you just described as. It was, hey, man, thanks for making me feel like a lesser man or lesser person. And the other side is, you know, hey, man, I was, I was really sucking today. I was having a bad day. I felt like crap. And then I saw you, and it kind of it sparked me to, to, to just give a little bit of extra. Um, either way, it's cool. I mean, obviously, I prefer to be kind of on that second side of the house. Uh, but, but I totally get it, man. Uh, no, it's uh, yeah. You definitely, um, you know, one of those guys who, when I check your Instagram and go, ah, okay, I need to work harder. Um, so yeah, you know, you have that effect on me as well. It's just, uh, yeah, I think uh, I appreciate it. You know, yeah, definitely. So um, yeah, you do. So just sorry, I'm just going to jump right into the, the jiu-jitsu stuff because I know you said you've done some jiu-jitsu and uh, we're both, uh, you know, big jiu-jitsu guys. So when when did that um, begin for you? So I began my combat sports. Uh, career and passion when I was a kid. I started boxing real young and then transitioned and added wrestling to my game. Did that a little bit through high school. Uh, once I got to college, I went to college to play football. So that was kind of my focus. I still, I still did some wrestling and some boxing on the side just because I loved it. Mm-hmm. Uh, a little bit of competing here and there. Kind of transitioned into, into MMA towards the tail end of my college career. Once my football playing days were done, I still had some school left to knock out. So I started tinkering around in the MMA world. Uh, back in the day, at that point, MMA was not sanctioned as a sport up in Massachusetts. So uh, it was kind of done in the, in the shadows a little bit, if you will. Uh, but I just enjoyed the sport. I enjoyed the, the competition and the training with the guys. I really didn't get into jiu-jitsu specifically until I got into the Army. And it was, I was in basic training, and I was taught – MACP Level 1, which stands for Modern Army Combatives Program. Um, I was certified as a Level 1 MACP guy, which is just kind of the basics of what that program is, which is based on jiu-jitsu and kickboxing. Uh, once I got out of basic, got to my unit, I started progressing to other areas um, to include MACP, and then I got in, incorporated into SOCP, Special Operations Combatives Program, and uh, both of those two programs have a, have a big jiu-jitsu foundation built into them. And coming from a guy as a stand-up fighter and a wrestler, I was just getting my ass kicked by these jiu-jitsu practitioners. Because the second I would get put on my back, I, had n- I didn't know what to do. And I-, I knew there was a huge flaw in my game. So I joined a local gym <clears throat> out of Fort Bragg that taught jiu-jitsu and MMA. 
And, uh, and as I continued to train in both, I did notice my passion for jujitsu specifically began to take off even more so than, than the striking stuff. And, uh, and really I've just, I've just kept up with it since, man. It's something I promote heavily because I think it's, and you guys know, man, I just think it's an amazing sport and it's an amazing community and it just has effect across the entire spectrum of production. Uh, and I, I'm constantly promoting jujitsu, especially guys that are, you know, just down or having trouble dealing with stress or post-traumatic stuff. I'm, hey, man, find the closest jujitsu gym you have and start training as often as possible. Yeah. 100%. 100%. Yeah. I know not similar to, obviously, post-traumatic stress, but my uh, my son trains jujitsu with me and Chris as well once the gyms are all back open over here. Um, and he had a spell. He's, he's now 17. Um, but he had a wee spell when he was like 14, 15, where he really struggled with a lot of mental health issues as a young teen. Um, and I said to him, the best thing you can do is get out your brain a little bit, get into your body a bit more. And we ended up finding jujitsu kind of just over three years ago now. And the difference in him has been unbelievable. Do you know what I mean? So I agree 100% on that sentiment. It's it's been so positive for him, so positive. I think it's great, especially, man, as you brought up with the kids. And uh, I would help out with the kids' classes at at, at my gyms. Usually it was taught before the adult classes would go. And just to be able to watch – these kids, some of them are as young as, you know, five, six years old. And just over the course of, you know, six months, 12 months, their confidence is increasing. Their discipline is increasing. And then you have a conversation with their parents, some of which were, were, were I would be training with. Um, they would talk about them in school or in preschool, the way they're acting around the house, just overall production, just going up across the board. And I think anytime you're put in an environment, a controlled environment, where you are gradually getting comfortable being in what is an inherently uncomfortable situation and that just gets reinforced over and over and over again it starts to put things in perspective really quickly just across the spectrum of life and i just think it's phenomenal especially for children uh my son he's three and um i'm already looking forward to the days when i can bring him in get him in his little gi and uh and watch him go to work I think it's um it's always really cool to see uh you know kids training with their, their parents. It's uh that's something that's really cool. Uh, it's a really cool thing for them like to do together. Uh, one thing I want to touch on there is um you said something and we have said it so many times now in the podcast is, you know, with life as in jiu-jitsu, you have to get comfortable being uncomfortable. It's such an important thing to do. Um, you know, you know, life as as well as uh, rolling. Um. Shit's not always going to be nice. Sometimes things are going to go bad, and you want to be in a terrible situation. And and if you don't train and you don't prepare for that situation, it's going to suck really badly. Um, so yeah, jujitsu is a, a fantastic metaphor. Um, you know, for for, for that in life. Um, so yeah, I what uh, you know, like yourself, you're saying yourself, Nick. Uh, you know, a little bit of a boxing background. Um, and then once you sort of find jiu-jitsu it just really gets under your skin it's amazing the way it gets in, under your skin and you're like fuck this is all i want to do now i just want to find guys and fucking yeah. grapple that's all i want to do it's amazing um so yeah uh i got you know you're saying you know obviously from boston so were you a, a mickey ward guy so i trained at romalo's west end gym uh when i was in college which is the same gym that that he trained at yeah okay that's yep. awesome yeah, it's funny. Um, you know, when that film came out, when the, the fighter came out, and everybody was talking about, um, you know, it was a great film in terms of being a film. And I said, listen, 
fuck all that. If you want to know about Mickey Ward, go watch Arturo Gatti, round nine, the first fight. That right. is Mickey Ward. It's un- it's incredible. So uh, yeah. you're incredible. Did you did you ever get to to hang out with him or? Oh yeah, I mean, we didn't hang out socially. We weren't. I yeah. wouldn't say we were friends, but um, he would come by the gym all the time. Um, when I was in college, uh, I was a bouncer at a local bar, so it was one of his kind of regularly frequented locations. Uh, um, so yeah, we interacted, you know, occasionally, every now and then. Um, great dude, salt of the earth, blue collar type dude. Um, just an all around solid, solid guy. Yeah, those are, those are the guys you like. Those mm-hmm. are the guys you like. So. How, um, you know, so we'll just jump straight into this now. That, um, how do you find training with the, 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 the leg issue? Leg issue? It's not a leg issue, it's a fucking amputee. Yeah. <laughs> Something yeah, like issue. Good question, man. So I, I began to, uh, <laughs> that's funny. Uh, that's a slight, slight nuisance that you uh, have to deal with. Um, <laughs> I began um, doing the jiu-jitsu stuff as an amputee while I was still in the hospital. So I was at Walter Reed in Bethesda, which is uh, the biggest military medical hospital we have in the inventory. And there was a, a local uh, black belt that had a school downtown in D.C. And he would come to the hospital once a week and work with any anybody. It was mostly amputees, but he would work with anyone that was there going through treatment. And uh, it started off real rocky, man. And you know what? What was what was harder really than learning my technique and my game now as an amputee was actually unlearning years and years and years of reaction and just responding accordingly as previously a guy with four limbs and now I only have three. So kind of just wiping the slate clean and starting fresh was just a challenge within itself. Once the ball got rolling, um, it, it progressed pretty fast because I was, I, was, I was loving it. It was great for my mobility. It was great for my cardio. It was great for my mindset. So I was training with him at the hospital once a week, and then I actually just became a member at his school downtown, and I was there usually two or three nights a week. So I was doing jiu-jitsu constantly. And um, it, was a, it was a progression in terms of my game, but also the hardware that I needed to actually protect my limb. Right. So my my stump, I'll call it, which apparently, just so you guys know, is considered a derogatory term to the uh, to the community. I guess I'm allowed to say it because I have one. So I'll call it what I want. My stump is pretty sensitive. Right. So there's all kinds of little bone spurs and, and, and stuff sticking out. So I can't really put any weight directly on top of it if I don't have any type of protective device. So in the beginning of my jiu jitsu journey as an amputee, I was mainly just working from a seated position and working my working my um my ground game for my back, but like half my game was taken away. So I went to my prosthetist at the hospital and said, "Hey, here's what I need," and we just began working through different uh, devices that I could put on my leg that would protect it for one and allow me to actually prop up weight on top of it and then kind of be able to play from almost like a kneeling position. So I think the uh, the the socket I have now that I use is probably version I don't know 27 or 28. We've just made modifications over the years. Uh, we had to remodify it once I once I started competing again. Um, different federations allow different types of supportive equipment. So really the goal was to make it as streamlined and as padded and as protective as possible. Not for me, but for whoever I was competing against. Um, so to answer your question, it's it's been a journey. It really doesn't end, and that's really no different for me or for anybody else it's just it's a constant never-ending pursuit 
of uh, of a perfect game, which doesn't exist, right? Because it's just it never ends. Yep. So, uh, I, you know, I, I I find myself to be real comfortable in certain positions, um, but I spend more of my time working on the positions that are that are more challenging for me. And, and my coaches yeah. local really kind of push me down that road. Like, hey, man, you're great from upright. You're great from on top. You got most of your weight is in your upper body. You're really strong, but we need to work on these gaps that you have here, here, and here. I'm like, all right, man, let's do it. Yeah, I was. That's one of the questions I was going to ask because, um, you know, I know our our jiu-jitsu coach uh, John. He he's a, a black belt in judo as well, and he says one of the the biggest challenges he has um, in judo is he he sometimes you know he, he trains with a guy who's blind, mm-hmm. and he says it becomes so, you know, you, you can hear, you know, he hears your breathing differently. So he has an advantage that some people would consider to be a disadvantage, but it, he turns it into an advantage. So what are the advantages and disadvantages now for you in jiu-jitsu? Because there must be some positions where, you know, it becomes an advantage. Yeah, I'll, I'll go ugly early. So the disadvantage is obviously I don't have a closed god, right? That's that's really not possible in the terms of how you would normally close a god. Um, so when I am on my back, you know, I do look to hit half god as soon as possible, so at least have some kind of a control, some kind of control. Uh, same on the top, a full mount position for me is really really tough because I only have really one one stable platform on one side. It's real easy for me to just get rolled the other direction without posting an arm out to the side. Um, the advantage, though, and I'll go back to kind of my Walter Reed days. I read uh, the book Unstoppable by a guy named Anthony Robles, who was, uh, who was born with one leg, all-American wrestler. Yeah, phenomenal dude. I mean, if you guys haven't heard about him, I imagine you have. He's just, his story is, is fantastic. And I read his book, and um, there's a really interesting part of the book. It's actually his mo- from his mother's perspective. And she was saying how she would go to his competitions and in the stands, other parents or viewers would say that, hey, this isn't fair. This dude only has one leg. It, it's, it's not fair, saying that he was at a distinct disadvantage. Well, as his game progressed and he was able to find ways to use his body type as an advantage, the entire conversation flipped. And it was now it was unfair for his opponent because he held so much weight in his upper body. Right. So jujitsu and wrestling, those are weight class sports. And because his upper body was so much stronger than any of his opponents, it was now considered that he had an advantage. And I noticed that myself when, um, when I really started to get back into competing, and I would cut weight and I'd get myself to a lower weight class or whatnot. But if you would look at me from the waist up against anyone I was competing against, whether I cut down to 200 or 215 or whatever it was, you would say there's no way these guys can be in the same weight class. This is ridiculous because I'm missing probably 40, 45 pounds worth of leg, right? So on one side, there's a disadvantage when it comes to my stability and the certain positions I can maintain control in. But on the other side, which I think I look at as, as more of an advantage, is my upper body is, is just going to be stronger than anyone that I compete against because I hold so much of the weight in my upper body. So... It's, there's two sides of the coin, obviously. I, I look at the positive side of it. And then um, also I'm able to transition to int- into and out of positions kind of quickly without having a leg to work mm. through some kind of a, a gap or work an angle because it's just automatically going to go. So the game's developed over the years, man. And uh, 
and you know, advantage, disadvantage, it really doesn't matter. I love it. I, I go into there looking to get my ass kicked um, every day. And if I leave a trading session without having gotten my ass kicked, then uh, then I made a serious mistake. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a very bit. Obviously, Ali gets his ass kicked quite regularly. Um... <laughs> I told you, mate. I told you, mate. <laughs> you know, I have to take my shots. Um, <laughs> I have to take my shots when I get them. Uh, yeah, so... The story of how you how you lost a leg uh, is uh, incredible. Uh, so you know what you know what how did that happen? What was the you know the build up to that? And you know because the story is is uh, uh, you know um, for guys like us it's I mean like holy shit. So you know what's the, what's the story around about that? Yeah, man. So um, my 2012, which went into 2013 deployment to Afghanistan. Um, the backstory is we knew we were going into a very kinetic and very difficult trip. Um, and it proved to be just that as soon as we got there and started doing stuff, it was, it was game on. And it was pretty much that way every single day. So I had been wounded two times prior to the incident where I lost my leg. Right. I took some shrapnel to the back of my shoulder. Um, I took an AK round to the, to the side of my face. Both of those were really minimal, you know, not really a big deal. Nope, um, no, 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 yeah, okay. It's it's getting you know getting blown up and having grenades blow up near you and getting shot. It's uh, it's it's obviously not normal. But throughout that deployment, believe it or not, we had guys that were getting banged up left and right. I lost several brothers of mine over there. Um, so you know I downplay it, and it's part of just kind of who I am. But it's more so is about everything that else was going on around us during that trip. That an AK round to the side of the face that just kind of ripped me open a little bit and was put back together compared to what other guys were dealing with, including paying the ultimate sacrifice, literally, you know, was nothing. And when that stuff happened, um, the goal was to get back to the guys as soon as possible. And, you know, I managed to make that happen uh, through both of those incidences and, and get back to the guys. And that's, that's what mattered to me. And that's what happened. Um, just to, I guess where I bring that up, just to kind of preface really just how aggressive and kinetic that entire six months really was. Leading up to the incident where I ended up ultimately losing my leg, and we only had a couple weeks left in the deployment, so we were about to transition out, and another team was going to come in behind us. And we were doing what was kind of a standard mission for us. We had several different local entities that we were doing a mission with. So we had the Afghan National Army soldiers, kind of your more conventional guys. We had an Afghan Special Forces detachment that was attached to us the entire trip. We had some Afghan National Police officers, and we had some Afghan local police officers. So a lot of different players in the game, which, again, was something we were used to. Um, we, had our, we had our base kind of compartmented where we – we all lived on the inner perimeter, and on the outside of that, we had what we would call our motor pool, where we would keep our vehicles and our fuel and storage, and our HLZ was right there, so it was kind of segregated. And um, we had a policy, which we enacted, 
was that prior to a mission, the leadership from the different sections would come into the perimeter, into our motor pool area, and we would brief them on what we were doing. The remainder of the troops would stay outside, and then they would go tell them where we were going, what we were doing, and then we would go. And that was just to kind of minimize having a lot of these people around us that we really didn't know in a very vulnerable situation. Well, on this particular day, um, the leadership came in and a Ford Ranger pickup truck also came in with a couple soldiers. And I noticed it. And at the time I was an 18 Bravo, which are the weapons and tactics specialists on the team. And it's really base security is, is, is the responsibility of, of our section. I noticed it, it irritated me. I thought about dealing with it and addressing it right there and then, but I didn't. And I decided that I would wait until this mission was over and I would bring it up with my detachment leadership and I would have them address that with their leadership for future operations. Something that um, I have lived to regret to this day. We get done with our, uh, or we're about to wrap up with our pre-mission brief. We're doing comms checks and just final checks of our equipment. And we're all basically in this giant circle. So my entire team and some of the other infantry guys that were out there with us that were supporting the operation. And um, I end up turning and walking away, heading towards my truck before the, uh, the, the, the brief was completely done. And as I'm making my way to my truck, I hear gunshots coming out from behind me. And my initial thought was somebody just kind of slipped their finger on the trigger and just clocked off around by accident, which wouldn't be unheard of working with Afghan partners. It happens after the third or fourth, fifth round clocked off. I realized that someone was deliberately shooting and I snapped my head around. And one of the soldiers had jumped up on the back of that, of that Ford Ranger pickup truck. There was a truck mounted machine gun and he was opening fire into the group from about maybe 15 or 20 feet away. Um, I was, I had a, a, a solid piece of cover right next to me, which was one of our, our armored trucks. And my first instinct was to move behind that cover and then look to eliminate the threat, which is what we are trained to do and what is buried into us through training and repetition. I also noticed that one of our infantry uplift soldiers who was set to be one of our drivers for that mission was, uh, was standing there just kind of like a deer in headlights. At this point, people are hitting the ground, whether because they're just looking to just get some cover, people are running or people are getting shot, and he's not moving at all. So I decide to make a move towards him. So he's maybe 10 feet away from me. I, I, I go at him at a dead sprint, and I hit him with such impact that I ended up falling on top of him on the ground. And it was when I was laying on top of him was when I got hit. So I felt the first couple rounds hit my right leg. And from a machine gun of that caliber, from that distance, it, it feels like a sledgehammer is smashing into you. So I knew I was shot, um, didn't know how bad, grabbed him, and I drug him maybe five or six feet behind a truck. And uh, get behind a truck, I do a quick assessment of him, and um, he's okay. At this point, um, I guess maybe I should back up a little bit. As I, as I get to where I'm going... The shooter is still firing. At this point, we're receiving machine gun fire from outside of our camp. So it was, it was a coordinated attack. I grab a rifle that was laying on the ground next to me. And um, I go to engage, try to get some shots off. At this point, I'm, I'm kind of losing peripheral vision at this point. And uh, my body's 
beginning to go into a state of shock. I don't take very many accurate shots. Uh, a couple of my teammates eliminated that immediate threat from within inside our, our compound. And, um, and then we're still receiving some harassing fire, but at, at that point, I, I really in no position to deal with that. So I do a quick assessment of this, uh, of this soldier and uh, he seems fine. He doesn't have any puncture wounds. He's in shock, but that, that's about it. And then I go to treat myself. So I expose my right leg, just kind of rip what was left of my, of my pants off. And uh, my leg is just complete hammered meat and bone at this point. And I noticed there's a, basically a river of blood flowing from where I had been hit to where I was currently laying after I drug this dude and myself. Just a river of blood. So I knew that my femoral artery had been severed. And uh, my training told me I had probably maybe 8 to 12 minutes uh, before I would be completely drained of blood. So time is of the essence. I grab a tourniquet. I slap that on, tighten it down as, as hot as I can. Uh, bleeding doesn't stop. I throw on a second tourniquet, tighten that down as hot as I can. I can't tell if the bleeding has stopped or not. At this point, our medics um, are, are beginning their triage process, so they're kind of moving us into different categories. And I am I'm shoving him and all my other teammates that are still up away from me because I'm I'm convinced that uh, that I'm I'm gonna die. I'm like, hey guys, don't don't waste your time on me. Go work on somebody that, that you can actually help. Uh, they ignored me, of course. You know, put me on some fluids, and uh, I was still bleeding. So they they were trying to stop the bleeding. It uh it really wasn't stopping. They they threw on a third tourniquet on top of it, but I didn't notice I was still bleeding. So I had kind of a last ditch effort. So I grabbed some gauze out of my med kit and I loosened up one of the tourniquets. And I reached in with the gauze and I was trying to feel around for where the, my femoral artery was actually severed. I think I feel something at this point, you know, all the blood is shunting inward to my body to try to protect my organs. So I'm, I'm really dealing with these like meat mittens. I don't have a whole lot of dexterity, but I think I feel something. And I just wrench down as hot as I can, re-secure the tourniquet on top of it. And at that point, I was pretty sure that, that my work there was done. I, I, I didn't have anything else left really to do. So I kind of drug myself over in the direction of some of my teammates that were, that were also wounded and they were laying there, you know, and they're in pain and they're scared. I just, I just spent the rest of my time talking to them um, until the medevac bird could land. And that took anywhere between, I want to say it was 60 and 90 minutes before that, that first medevac bird could land. And that was because there was still an ongoing firefight in the area. And, uh, you know, they won't land a medevac bird typically under fire because you lose that bird. And now you've just, now you've just made the problem a whole lot worse. So about 60, 90 minutes before I was, uh, before I was life flighted out, man. And I'll just kind of pause there and, and let you guys kind of go from there. Whew. Fuck. <laughs> That's, uh, I couldn't even begin. Like it's such a, such an insane thing, but you know, what's interesting is through that whole thing is you still seem to be calm and in control of this. Like you still seem off the situation. You were still in control of the situation. You you know what was going on. You're saying to guys, just leave me. Um, and you, you're aware of everything going on. So it seems like you were still calm, you know, in that moment, you, you weren't panicking. You weren't, there was no panic. You were just kind of, okay, this is what I'm supposed to do. This is what we've been trained to do. And, um, 
you know, that's that's how it is. So does it's, it go, does it go back to that thing, Nick, of you, you kind of rise to the level of your training. Do you think that played a, a part at that point that you were just assessing, remaining calm, and as you said, because you had had it drilled in so long, you were able to maintain that. Yeah, so it's interesting, man, because in the onset of the incident, I ignored my training, um, which is another decision that I, I live with forever because my training tells me to move the cover, eliminate the threat, which I didn't do. Um, it was my first instinct, and I ignored it, and I went after this other soldier. Now, I look back on that, and I, you know, the what-if game doesn't end, but what if I had done what I was supposed to do, got behind cover, got a weapon system out and I eliminated that threat, would other dudes that were banged up or killed that day, would they be alive today or would they not be wounded today? And there's, there's no answer to that question. Um, that's something that, that I still struggle with today. Um, it's got, I've gotten better at it on the onset, you know, early recovery. It was really, that was really tough for me to, to just know that I made quote unquote the wrong call, but I know in my heart of hearts, my heart was in the right place. And my instincts and my love for a brother superseded my training. The flip side of that is during medical procedure on myself, my training kicked in and I followed it step by step by step. So that I think ultimately is what ended up saving my, my own life was that I was able to just go into that reactive mode, deal with massive bleeding, hemorrhage, massive hemorrhaging. These are the techniques and the, and the interdictions that you do to stop it. And I was just kind of on autopilot doing what I had been trained to do. Um, and I think the last piece of that is in terms of being able to stay calm. And, and there's no way you can really prepare yourself to be in that environment. And we train all day and training is one thing and real life is another thing. It doesn't matter who you are and what you're doing, how tough you are, how often you've drilled this thing or that thing. When it happens for real, your body may not respond the way you trained it to respond. That's just the reality of combat. I was very accepting of the fact that I'm going to die and I'm okay with that. And, you know, I'm often asked that question, you know, what's that like, you know, laying on the ground, bleeding out, knowing your life is over. And I'll be honest with you guys. It was surprisingly, I was surprisingly content with it. I was frustrated because out of all the gunfights and engagements we had been in prior to that, the way I was going to be killed was at the hands of a guy that I had been training the entire time we were there. And I just mm -hmm. remember thinking, man, I taught you how to use that gun and you just shot me with it. Right. So that was really annoying. And I was really frustrated and angry about that. But at the same time, you know, I'm a warrior and uh, this is, this is part of accepting that as a profession and if I'm going to go down, I want it to be surrounded by my brothers going down in combat. And, and I was fine with this. So I just think a combination of kind of my mindset there uh, as a warrior and accepting the, the fate that was ahead of me and, um, and my care and love for my guys and wanting to just be there for them in my last moments is really just what allowed me to, you know, just kind of stay calm and, and do whatever I could, you know, given the situation. That's really interesting because we had, um, as we mentioned off, off camera, Nick, we had Mark Ormrod, a Royal Marines commando, two episodes before this. It's not gone out at the time of recording. Sounding all professional there, eh? But um, <laughs> he, uh, he ended up losing uh, both his legs and an arm to an IED, and he talked us through the, the situation on the podcast. And mm. he said exactly the same as yourself, Nick. He, he, at, at some point, he said, 
you know, both his legs have gone in the IED explosion. I'm going to die here, and actually, I'm okay with it. And he said, and he remembers very distinctly lying back on like the the sand from Afghanistan. I'm sure you know far better than we do. And he said, and the sun was beating down, and he says he felt like he was laid on a beach in Spain, and he was okay with it. He was totally, totally okay with it. In that moment, he was he was, I suppose, at peace with it. Mm. And it's, it's interesting that you know you were in a a very similar situation and kind of came to the same the same thought process, same conclusion. I don't, I don't know what the right phrase is, but that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's um so in that, you know, in that time, um, you know, you're saying when the you know the the, the helicopter was coming in. Does time does time become kind of weird? Move slowly, does it move fast? Are you, are you sitting waiting on the the you know the, the chopper to turn up or you know, does everything looking back now, does it seem like a blur or do you remember very distinctly everything? Like how does that like what what's the thought process in your head? Yeah, so when the when the incident first kicked off, every second felt like an hour. Everything was happening very slowly. And like I said, that that soldier was no more than ten feet from me. But the sprint that I had to get him, it felt like I was running for a year to get to that guy. And same thing when, when I was shot and I drug him and myself and I'm applying the tourniquet and I'm getting my situational awareness around me. It was very, very slow. It felt like it was forever. And really, it was just a matter of seconds and or minutes, you know, for that entire process to happen. Once, uh, once the threat was, was, was removed and we got the situation outside of our camp relatively under control, that's when it get, it's more of a blur in my memory. I think I, I was going in and out of consciousness. But from the time that they moved me and the guys that were going to go on the first bird, to the HLZ point, um, that felt like a matter of minutes when really it was upwards of an hour. So that went by really fast. And then everything after that, um, it's just kind of, it's just kind of spotty. And I do have memories of, and I'll just kind of jump ahead a little bit. When they, when they first medevaced me out, they flew me to, um, Bob Shank, which is where our, our AOB headquarters was located. So one echelon of command above us. And they brought us there because it was a faster flight than bringing us to Bagram, which has a higher level of medical care, but it's a slightly longer flight. So they went with speed versus level of care. They brought us to the first place. It was myself. I want to say two or three other guys. The most severely wounded guys were on that first bird. And um, I needed a blood transfusion badly. And uh, they administered a transfusion and it was the wrong blood type. And in the, in the fray of things, what ended up happening was they mixed up my last name with one of my teammates. We have similar last names and they gave me his blood. So my entire body just, just completely shut down. Um, and they weren't sure what happened, but they knew that I was, I was, I was going downhill really fast. I needed to get to Bagram to a higher level of care. So they put me back on a helicopter and they flew me to Bagram. And it was when I was on that flight that they realized what happened and they notified the hospital that was about to receive me. And basically, you know, hey, this is what just happened. And uh, he's, there's no way he's going to survive the flight. So just be prepared to just receive the body when it gets there. In one, in one instance, they were right. You know, I did code on that flight to Bagram. Um, 
They ended up getting me right into surgery. They hacked my leg off, you know, below the knee, trying to minimize the amount of damage my body was trying to recover from, pumped me full of my actual blood type. And, uh, you know, obviously I managed to survive. The, that, that entire process, memory-wise, is, uh, is a total blur, just kind of spots random memories. But in the beginning of things, I remember those moments very clearly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I suppose you... that, um, that blood type issue, as crazy as this sounds, that's probably the, the bigger danger than, than being shot at that point. You know, when you're they're, they're pumping the wrong blood into your body, that must have been, as you say, that's, that's close to the end at that point. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, it's uh, it's something I've gotten more comfortable with sharing because I think there's there's, there's lessons to be learned there, especially in the medical community. Um, but what I always emphasize on is is obviously that that was not done intentionally, right? And mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm I'm asked is you know, are you angry about that? You know, like how could they? How does that happen? And hey, listen, you know, we 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 operate in the in the in the world of human beings that make yeah. mistakes and they deal with stress and they're doing everything in their power to save me and my friends and i am grateful for everything that they did i have no ill will towards them and in fact i didn't find out this till years later i suffered an injury an injury um in a jiu-jitsu tournament i shredded my labrum in my shoulder i needed surgery so i went in and the doc is looking at my is looking at my name and my records and, and she's like hey uh you know were you in afghanistan says here you're on you're on dialysis at one point, like what's that about? And I start telling her the story and she's like, wow, okay. So she's like, I was in Afghanistan in 2013. And when this happened with you, they sent out a mass um, report on what happened to the entire medical community saying, hey, we just, we just pumped this dude full of the wrong blood type. These are the new protocols we're gonna put in place when dealing with blood. And so they, they revamped their, their systems and their protocols for blood work uh, because of what happened with me. So, you know, I, I paid, I paid a hard lesson. I'm fine. I'm obviously alive here doing things. So it's no problem to be able to look back and say, you know what, <clears throat> maybe that incident prevented that from happening to somebody else later on who would not have been able to survive that. So, you know, they're, they're, they're positives to take away from every event. And, mm. you know, those guys do what they needed to do. And it's, it's, uh, I'm just grateful for, for what they did and I have no, no anger, ill will towards them whatsoever. Do you, do you ever think to yourself, Nick, or wonder, um, there's someday, someday, whether it's a, a higher being or whatever you want to call it, somebody wants you to be alive. Yeah, man, it's, uh, it's, it's tough to not, to not think that. You know, um, I'm a Christian. I don't, I don't spend as, as, as much time practicing as I should. Um, but according to medical science and procedures, I shouldn't be alive, right? Yeah. To be laying on the ground with nothing more than a tourniquet and some gauze to stop massive hemorrhaging from the femoral artery being cut for over an hour, almost an hour and a half. It usually doesn't happen. So, you know, I do, <clears throat> I do think someone or something was looking out for me. <clears throat> and uh, I also think that, you know, I'm just, I'm a stubborn person by nature and I'm competitive. And uh, I just, I, I, ref- I was willing to, to fight to stay alive based purely off of almost spite than anything else. So I, I think it's a combination of both at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. So it's one of those things where 
you know, I'm not a believer in you know the 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 old white guy with the grey beard in the, in the sky. <clears throat> that doesn't make sense to me. But you know, in certain instances, yours being one of them, you look at that and you go, there has to be something at play here. You know, there just has to be something else. That just seems, uh, you know, not to, not 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 to turn this religious now, but that it just seems like you know whether it's a guardian angel or something, but somebody has, you know, in that situation, like, like Jesus, some something, you know, there's just got to be something else there. Um, uh, like I say, I don't want to turn this into a religious uh, seminar, but, you know, it just seems like one of those instances where you must be, you know, lying there at night sometimes going, oh, goodness, somebody must really, really want me to be here uh, in that situation. So it's, uh, you know, a hell of a, a, hell of a story, uh, which, which, uh, gets gets uh, you know a little crazier because you go back in <laughs> after after all said and done yeah <laughs> yeah and that, you know that was that's been quite the journey in itself man and it, it doesn't stop you know it's, a, it's an everyday thing um but to just kind of i guess i'll just kind of breeze through the wave tops and you guys can can ask whatever you want um i spent a year in the hospital at walter reed because of the infection that had set in, mostly because of how long I was on the ground, the, uh, they just were incrementally amputating my leg higher and higher and higher and higher over the course of about six, eight weeks. So I was in surgery two to three times a week, just rinse and repeat, pumping me full of antibiotics, trying to get the infection to stop, which left me with what I have today, which isn't very much. My femur is about four inches in length, and I'm somewhere between 6'5 and 6'6. So I'm mechanically that's a challenge as an amputee because my prosthetic has to be so long and that just creates more and more of, of a challenge to deal with. So the year Walter Reed, um, you know, physical therapy, working my prosthetist, getting myself upright and, and learn how to live life as a one-legged dude, get back to my unit, which at the time was at Fort Bragg. And, um, you know, my command was like, Hey man, great to have you back. What, what are you trying to do? And I made it very clear from the very beginning that I was going to get back to my team. And they said, all right, man, that sounds good. Uh, you know, where, how do we do that? What, you know, what do you need from us? And I was like, oh, well, I'm not ready to do that quite yet. This is still real early on in the process. I knew I needed a job in the meantime. I needed to provide value. So I asked to be on, this, on the SOCP committee, on the actual committee that teaches um, combatives for the special operations unit out of Fort Bragg. So they, uh, they granted that request. So I was working as an instructor. And at that, at that time in my life, I, uh, I was, a, I was a, a bit of a crazy person, to, to, to put it bluntly. Um, my life consumed with nothing more than getting bigger, faster, stronger, and getting back onto the team. That, that was it. I didn't care about anything other than that. And it was, I'm up at four, I'm doing my mobility, I'm doing my strength stuff, range of motion stuff. I get to the gym, I do my strength training, I get to work, I'm teaching classes. At lunch, we're doing jiu-jitsu open mat to keep our own game shop. Um, in the evening, go back, teach more classes. At night, cardio, endurance, eat, 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 sleep, repeat. That was it. Um, you know, my current wife now, at the time we were, we were dating, I sat her down one, one morning and I said, hey, babe, uh, I am going to have to put myself into a really dark place here if I'm going to have a shot at this thing and just – here's the heads up. And she's like, yeah, you know, you got to do what you got to do. So I locked myself in this dungeon, man. And it was just consumed of work and discipline and eating and resting and training like an absolute lunatic, which I did for about eight months. 
And at about that point, I felt like I was as ready as I was going to be to make it, to take a shot at getting back onto the team. And I had no idea what that process was going to look like. I just told my command, I said, Hey, uh, you know, what do you need me to do to prove and demonstrate my abilities to go back? And there really wasn't a laid out pipeline for me to really follow. They just kind of started throwing things at me one after another. And it started with just you know, your basic physical fitness test and a couple other physical fitness assessments. Uh, they put me through another psych screening because, I mean, like I said, at this point, people around me genuinely thought I was out of my mind. So uh, that came back good. You know, the doctor was like, he's no more crazy than he was as a two-legged dude. So, like, he's, he's good to go. Um, you know, they put me through a proficiency evaluation and just all these things. It, you know, it took about three months of usually once a week I was doing something to display my, my capabilities. And um, at the conclusion of the, my last physical assessment, the, uh, the group commander was there. The, uh, the group command sergeant major was there. About 50 other people were there watching me do this last thing. And, uh, you know, I completed it. And uh, I looked over at the boss and I was like, hey, you know, sir, what, what, else, what else do you need me to do? You know, this is like 90 days worth of stuff. And he said, uh, he's like, you know, if I wasn't here to witness you doing what you just did, I wouldn't believe that it was possible. And uh, you have your orders tomorrow to go back to your team. So, uh, you know, it was a huge win for me. And, you know, kind of flashed to bang from the time I was injured to the time I was back um, on the team was, was about two years total, which is still real early on in the process. You know, I'm about seven years removed from the incident, and I'm still learning how to be more efficient and stronger as an amputee. It's, like I said, it's an everyday thing. Uh, so I, you know, I get back to the team, and they were already well into their training cycle. And about two months after I got back to the team, we were, we were back in Afghanistan. So that would be my first trip as an amputee. And uh, yeah, that was 2015. So in, in terms of um, in terms of amputees uh, going back in, um, is that you know I know you got a lot of um, praise um, you know for for doing such a thing which you know you rightly deserve, but is that a common thing or an uncommon thing or how you know what's the, the process of that, Nick? Yeah, so it's certainly not a common thing. Um, there are amputees in the military, active duty across the branches. Uh, you know, we, we are amputees. We are blessed with the technologies that have developed predominantly since 9-11 and the amount of amputees that the military has had to deal with. So there's been a lot of money in research and development and technology advancement that have given us amputees the tools that to, to make it possible for us to, to remain in, in active duty service. Um, when I got back from that 2015 trip, there was a, you know, there was a lot of visibility on us during the trip. It was, there was a lot of concern about me being there. It was a kinetic deployment. It was aggressive. It was, it was counter, it was counterterrorism, direct action type stuff. And there were concerns about me being there. And really, I can say with almost certainty, if, if one thing had gone wrong with me being a pot of whatever happened, they were, they were going to yank me off the team. So we were constantly being checked on. How's Nick? Has Nick and, you know, no SF team wants that amount of visibility on us. And, uh, you know, I, I give my guys a lot of credit, my ODA leadership, a lot of credit for dealing with that. When I got back from that trip, you know, it was, it was something that was being talked about. And, you know, I, I understood that. And, um, you know, I was asked to, to address it, uh, a bunch of variety of different platforms and stages, 
you know, kind of highlight some of the things that, that we've done in the military community. And I was able to get behind that and be supportive of that. But it also started getting thrown around that I was, you know, the first amputee to return to active duty and the first amputee to deploy. And, you know, no, none of that's accurate, right? And when, when that was getting thrown around, it, it really irritated me. And I was like, nah, I, I know that's not the case. Um, I'm looking for some closure on this and, and some actual data mining. So mm -hmm. I, I was real aggressive with my command and with on the government side of things and on our strength and conditioning side of things to actually do some research. And um, what came back from that was that there were no records of a special forces operator returning to combat um, as an above the knee amputee. And, you know, that's, that's something that, you know, I'm certainly proud of, but, um, you know, that, that was never and is never part of my deciding to do, you know, what I do and stay in the game. It has nothing to do with, with driving me towards being the first this or first that. I've, I've been a few firsts, you know, since I was injured and I'm proud of it, all of which has come with an amazing support system around me. I haven't done anything by myself. Um, there are, so I guess to answer your question, man, there there are amputees out there that are, that are still in the fight one degree or another. There are still amputees out there that, that are deploying to dangerous places. Um, for an above-the-knee amputee to, uh, to actually be returning repeatedly to actual combat is, is something that, that from the data mining that's happened, no one's aware of that has happened before. So, you know, it is what mm. it is. That's super cool. Do, do you think, Nick, that the... I suppose as well, particularly in the special forces, the ethos of that egalitarian elite where, you know, if you meet the standards required, you're in. Do you think that helped in terms of you getting back out? Because as you said, you know, your 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 commander or your CEO said, you know, if he hadn't seen it with his own eyes, he wouldn't have believed it. But you had a defined path of, just for argument's sake, you know, do X amount of pull-ups or do a, a timed run. And because you were able to do that and prove that you could, did that play a big element in you going back onto the active? Yeah, it did. Um, you know, some of the assessments I had to do were designed specifically to replicate what it's like downrange and in combat. So there's pull-ups in the run-in and stuff is important. You can measure the level of someone's physical fitness with that stuff, but they were also real specific in some of the events they had us do. Um, I think one of the biggest takeaways, man, is even though, you know, I, I did all these different events and assessments and whatnot, same with training. On that deployment, I had a lot to learn. And it was, it was the, the details that you take for granted as a two-legged guy. And I can remember working through the process of getting in and out of a truck. And that's something that you wouldn't even think about before. You know, you're just like one step in front of the other, you get in, you sit down. Well, for me, that wasn't quite as simple. And I needed to work on literally just getting in and out of a vehicle. So in our off time, I would... I would find tasks like that and I would just drill them. It's a lot like jujitsu. I would just drill them over and over and over and over and over again. Try different techniques, different hand placement, different foot placement. I had my teammates uh, video recording me. I'd go back, I'd check the tape. I had them up, they had me on a stopwatch, you know. I was out of my mind during that trip, same as during the train up, because I just I had so many gaps I needed to fill and I had I hadn't I hadn't a second to waste. So we'd get done with a mission, we'd go back, we'd refit, guys would eat, I'd be out in the truck working on getting in and out of the truck or some other menial task like going up into the hatch, reloading the 50 cal, coming back down, 
time to myself. So as, as great as it was to be back in Afghanistan, which is exactly where I wanted to be, um, I had a lot of learning still to do. So that trip was, was busy in itself just with operations, but I was jamming the rest of the time with operational tasks that I had not even considered needing to perfect before I was actually in that environment. So it was kind of twofold, man. The preparation to get there was, was certainly challenging, and there were a lot of things I needed to do. But I also realized very quickly once I was there that I had a lot to do still from that point moving forward. Yeah, I mean, it's it's um, it's one of those things where I think once you get you know dealt your your hand, you know, and this is this is what you know this is what the situation is, you know, in any situation, you know, the situation right now, you know, around about COVID and, and all this stuff, is you you kind of go, okay, this is <clears throat> this is a situation, we just have to adapt and move forward because you know there is nothing else. If you don't you don't adapt and move forward. Um, you kind of end up uh, like kind of staying still and, and, and just kind of getting lost in that moment. So, uh, in terms of what you did, you know, it's it's you know the same idea as okay, this is a new problem. How do we solve this problem? How do we get around this problem? And let's keep moving forward. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, so it's a you know it's um it's nice to see that you know that kind of mentality you know works at that level of. You know pressure and and circumstance um you know you, you can still go and do these things and go okay this is an issue but how do we get around it and still get the the, the job done um so it's really you know quite an inspirational thing to hear that happen and you know at that level to say okay watch this <laughs> do you know this this is an issue you know, but let's get it done and really that's it and you know whether whether it doesn't whatever you do for a living or for your hobbies or it it, it the process is still the exact same. And, you know, you and I kind of jumped off this call. You're like, man, I look at you and it makes me feel like a bitch. It's like, well, I'm no different than anybody else. I'm, yeah. I'm a human being who was given, you know, a set of, of, of obstacles to deal with. And, uh, and I just refused to accept defeat and to get to where I wanted to get to, you know, and that came with a ton of setbacks and hardships and failures, you know, along the way. And, um, you know, failure, man, I, I won't go off on a tangent, but just, you know, people's relationship with that word is just so critical. It's, it's I'll bring it back to jujitsu. You know, you learn when you get your ass kicked, right? Ali, you're going to be a pro here any minute because apparently you get your ass kicked all the time. Like that, that's when you get better. It's not, it's not a matter of if it happens, it's when it happens, what do you do about it? What do you do about it? You know, you address the lessons learned and then put the work back in and then work to failure again and again and again. And, you know, anyone, anyone can do it. I'm a firm believer in it. I, I am not cut from a separate cloth. I am not some type of weird organism from another planet. I'm a human being. I'm blood and flesh like anybody else. And, uh, you know, you just have the mentality to just not accept anything other than achieving your goals. And then that's it, you know, and. And to be fair, you know, I, I like to take the piss out of Ali because that's what, you know, friends do. But, you know, he does, uh, there's a few things that I do in jiu and he's now got very good at shutting those things down because I do them repeatedly. So he just goes, ah, okay. So, you know, he does. 
Um, yeah. That's as much. That's as much praise as I'm going to give him. But yeah, you know he does. I think that's uh, the nicest thing you've ever said to me. That's the nicest thing I've ever said to you. Yeah, but you know, no, I just wanted to make that point because you know, I, you know, I, you know, I, I, I say these things to him, but um, you know, because it happens, he does, he does adapt, and uh, yeah. So yeah, that's as much yeah. praise I'm going to give you. But uh, so. But on the flip of that, Chris, you then adapt because then I start shutting down what you were going to do. So now you go back and learn something else. So it's uh, that continual <laughs> process of that's all it is. You just have to find a way. Um, so but, uh, I, I wanted to um, circle back to those little minor, minor incidents uh, where you got shot in the shoulder and shot in the face, uh, if you don't mind, Nick, <laughs> since you just kind of brushed them off so flippantly at the time <laughs> how uh so the you know what what was this the, you know both those incidents because those both sound to me um you know fairly major um see so what was the the, the situation with, with those yeah the first time in um uh, we'd only been on the ground a couple weeks and you know we were doing operations about every day and we were driving to do something we got ambushed uh, a few of us and our partner force, we got out, we dismounted, we fire maneuver uh, through this little this little village. We were receiving uh, machine gun fire and sporadic AK fire and some uh, some indirect fires from. And as we were clearing our way to the main compound, um, we we're getting ready to breach one of the openings, and something just exploded behind me. And uh, you know, I felt the impact to the back of my shoulder. And that, I hadn't been injured in combat before, so I'm like, oh, this this is new. And I, I look back, and there's like a lemon-sized hole in my shoulder, and I'm gushing blood. And, uh, you know, that's, I've been banged up before, you know, in combat sports or in the streets, but it's 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 a it's a different situation. You're just <laughs> looking at a hole in your shoulder, right? Gunfire is going off around you. It's like, okay, this just happened. Um, training again just kicked in. You know, I, I opened up my med kit. I grabbed some gauze. I threw it in. Uh, we got to a point where, where we could kind of reconsolidate for a second. One of my teammates came over, he wrapped it up with an ace bandage, secured it. Um, and we, you know, we just, we just continued pushing. We, we cleared the area, do what we needed to do, got back in the trucks and, uh, we were heading back to, to the house, got back there. And, you know, my medic got a chance to take a look at it. He's like, oh yeah, this, this is kind of ugly. He's like, I'm gonna call on a medevac for you. And I threw a I threw a temper tantrum like a like a six year old girl in the toy store aisle, and didn't want to leave. He's like, nope, I got to get you out of here. You got to dock up, take a look at this. I'm like, oh, okay, fine. So I get a helicopter. I, I go over to uh, to where the AOB was located. I talked about that earlier. And um, this is a funny story. I'll tell this real quick. Medic looks at it, and the doc is like, all right, man. The only way we can heal this is we have to twice a day we have to pack it with antiseptic gauze. I can't stitch it shut because if I do, it's going to leave an open cavity inside your shoulder, which will manifest into infection and become a problem. So twice a day, I have this gauze packed. I would just let it sit. They take it out, repack it so that it would heal from the inside out, which makes sense. So I was there for about a week ish and um, I'm getting real antsy. Like this is bullshit. My medic can do everything that is happening here. I, why can I not go back to my team? Well, the doc, the main doc was at Bagram at a separate location, and his orders were for me to remain there until the wound had been completely closed, which could have taken a month, and um, I wasn't satisfied with that. So one morning, real early, I grabbed one of my buddies, and I had him drive me down to the, the airfield, and I went from 
one C-130, which is an airplane, one to another to another. And I found a, a flight crew that was on the way to Bagram. And I asked them if he'd give me a ride. And they said, sure. So I jumped on the bird. We flew to Bagram. I land. I walk over to our headquarters building, unannounced, obviously. I walk in and my, my higher level command is all sitting there. And they're like, hey, what are you doing here? And I'm like, I need a helicopter ride back to my team right now. And I'm not exactly in the most professional of situations at this time, but I'm real angry and I'm making my point. And uh, the commander there, he's from Boston. So he's talking to me about the Patriots and the Red Sox and just on this tangent. And we're, we're kind of hanging out. Well, the, the command sergeant major is there. And right there next to him, the phone rings. And it's my sergeant major, who's my immediate boss or boss's boss, from the location I had just left from, completely unannounced. And he was not happy with me. And uh, so he's, he's yelling at the other sergeant major, basically asking where I am. And I'm standing right there. And I, I know what's about to happen. So I get on the phone and he yells at me for a bit. And uh, I'm like, hey, so I, I apologize, but I, I, you know, I, I need to get on a helicopter. And this is where I am. And I'm, I'm trying to do what I got to do. And he's like, all right, man, just don't do that again. Um, kind of yelled at me a bit more and that was that. So <laughs> I threw, I threw a temper tantrum there as well. And, um, as I'm standing there and I'm in the control center, the uh, joint operational control center, there's television monitors around, there's all the staff is in there. It's actually my first time ever in one of those types of, of facilities, <clears throat> right as I'm standing there, my team is out on an operation and then they get, they get into a gunfight and I'm watching it from some of the monitors inside the jock. And now I'm really losing my mind and I'm flipping out. I'm throwing stuff around. Uh, they get the situation under control, but uh, I insist on getting on a helicopter. Well, the doc comes in and he's like, no, my orders are for you to stay until it's healed. And the commander there was like, Hey doc, I understand what you're saying. Um, I don't think you really want to tell this guy. No, uh, he seems pretty pissed. And um, he'll probably redirect <laughs> that anger towards you. So, the doc got uh, kind of outvoted on that one, and uh, I was back on a helicopter a couple days later. And, you know, like I said, man, it really wasn't a big deal. My medic was treating it. I was back doing operations the next day. You know, I'd be out. I'd look over. The gauze would, would be bleeding through. You know, we'd swap it out and just keep going. You know, it wasn't a real big deal. Um, when, when I did the research on this, Nick, I had read, I, can't, I think it might have been in the Boston Globe, I read about that incident that you've just described. And then they kind of casually say, you know, you look back and just packed it with gauze. And having seen pictures of you and then that story, I had visions of Jesse Ventura and Predator just like, just like, yeah, it's okay, keep moving. Just not care. That was the image I had in my head when when I read that story and having seen pictures of you on your social media. Pack it and move, pack it and move. Yeah, that's it, man. Not, not nearly as cool as uh, Jesse the Body Ventura, but, you know, I guess maybe similar. Yeah. Um, the second incident, man, it's, uh, yeah, we were on the way back from a mission. I was, I was in a trail vehicle. Our lead vehicle got hit with an ID, a massive ID, picked up the truck and threw it. Um, I was out of a turret in the, in the rear vehicle, so I had a front row seat to what was going on. A bunch of my buddies that were in the back of the truck, they get projected through the air, flying around like, like lawn dots. And I knew with everything in my soul that everyone in that vehicle was dead. I mean, the explosion was that big and it just picked up a fully armored truck and just threw it to the side of the road. 
Um, I jumped out of the hatch again, kind of my training told me to do one thing and I, I did something else. This isn't something I'm proud of, but you know, I jumped out of the hatch and I, I took off on foot, sprinted about three, 400 meters towards the crash site. And uh, as I was coming down, it ended up, the truck ended up landing off the side of the road in this apple orchard. And I end up sliding down into the orchard and I'm moving towards the truck, maybe about 25 feet away. And I, I trip and fall. And I look back and I tripped over one of my buddies who was, who was the turret gunner of that truck. And he was alive and I couldn't believe it. And I was, I was almost in more shock than he was. I'm like, oh man, okay. So I, I'm doing an assessment of him. His leg is snapped in half. He's bleeding from the mouth. He's got some pretty severe uh, post-blast injuries he's dealing with, but he's relatively okay from what I could see. And, you know, maybe about five or six seconds into that, we start getting engaged by a bunch of uh, maybe three dismounted guys that were, that were moving onto the vehicle. They hadn't seen me yet. They were just shooting at the truck, which again, about 20, 25 feet from me. So I had to do, uh, you know, what was really tough was, was leave my friend. I wanted to stay there with him and he's, he's obviously scared and panicked, but I had to leave him and uh, go deal with the immediate threat. So um, I eliminated that threat and two out of the three and the third one took, took off running and he was, he was firing back towards me over his shoulder, just blindly shooting and running away. And I'm, I'm maneuvering through these, this, this apple orchard towards him. And once again, I fall and I land up on, on my back, looking up at the sky. And I, I thought initially I had run into a branch from one of the trees and it just knocked me down. Come to find out a little bit later that I would actually been struck in the side of the face by an AK round, um, which I, I didn't know. I popped back up. I just kind of checked myself. I was fine. And I was going to go continue to maneuver on this dude. And I look over and the, the truck that had been hit by the ID was now on fire. And uh, the rest of the guys, you know, they're setting up support, support by fire positions. They were dealing with machine gun and mortar rounds that were coming in. So they're doing their thing. They're, they're, they're responding accordingly. Meanwhile, I'm not doing what I should have been doing. So I decided to move to the truck and it had, it had landed on its driver's side door. So the passenger side door is, is facing towards the sky. And at this point, it's just kind of a hunk of metal. And it's, it's on fire from the rear of the truck moving towards the cab. And I didn't know if anyone was left inside. So I, I jumped up on top of it and looked in. Fortunately, the passenger door had been blown off. So I was able to just look down. And our, uh, our, our detachment commander, our team leader, was in the truck. And he was the only one left in the truck. And I look in and the ammo from inside the truck is now cooking off from the heat, from the flames. So it was like looking inside of a bag of popcorn in the microwave. And we're still receiving some harassing machine gun fire. And it's, it's a pretty bad day. It's, it's not looking, looking good for any one of us. Uh, so I jump in the truck. I grab him. I kind of shimmy him up towards the, towards the door that I come in. He's a big cat, man. This dude played offensive line for West Point. He's probably... 290, 300 pounds without his equipment. So, you know, big boy. That's I kind of gosh. hoist him up. Um, I climb out. I kind of just deadlift him out of the vehicle. At this point, some of the other guys had, had shown up. I kind of just chuck him off the side. The other guys grab him, pull him away. He, uh, he had some pretty severe injuries. He he's, uh, ended up losing one of his legs below the knee. He had a couple other arterial bleeds. So he was, uh, he was real touch and go for a bit, but we got him. We gathered up everybody else that was inside the truck. Nobody was killed, as amazing as it is. Um, you know, we set up a CCP. We treated the guys as needed. Medevac Bird came in, and it was at that point I was treating one of the other guys. Was One of my teammates came over and said, 
hey, man, did you catch a round to the face? And I was like, no, I ran into a tree. And he's like, uh, no, I don't think that's what this is. I hadn't seen it yet. Um, so eventually my medic gets to me and he's like, yep, you need to be medevaced. And again, I throw a, I throw a hissy fit. And I re- refused to leave at least until we had our, our, our QRF response, response force. They showed up. Once the area was secure, I listened to my medic. I listened to my team sergeant. I got on a, on a helicopter. I flew out to get, uh, to get treatment. And I walked into the hospital and I am, I am fired up, pissed at, you know, at this point. And um, my guys were in there. They're all small, way more severely wounded than I am. And I only cared about them. And the doctors are all trying to treat me. And I'm, I'm not being very cooperative with any of these people. Um, eventually, someone kind of calms me down. He's like, hey, man, just let these guys treat you. And I'm like, fine, but I, I got to take a piss first. So I go, I go take a piss. And that was the first time I looked at myself. And it looked like a zombie had just taken a bite out of the side of my face. And I was still bleeding, right? So it actually had clipped an artery in my face. So it's still like pissing blood all, like, all over myself. And I was like, I actually, I kind of felt bad for giving my medic shit about, uh, <laughs> about insisting I get medevac. Because I was like, I probably wouldn't want to medevac me too. I, I don't look very good. So uh, I go in to, to see the doc. And he's like, hey, man, an artery has been clipped. It's no big deal. Uh, but I need to cauterize the wound. Meaning they use like this little mini welder and he's mm. like, I'm going to give you some, uh, I'm going to give you some pain meds. And I was like, no, nah, I don't want any pain meds. And he's like, no, nah, you're going to want some pain meds. I'm like, no, listen, I need you to get this done as soon as possible. Two of my friends are going into surgery right now and I need to be awake and coherent for those dudes. Like just do it. And he's like, oh shit. So he looks over at the commander and he's like, Hey man, Nick's not living, letting me give him any, any pain meds. And the, uh, my, the commander was like, well then just do it. So he gave me a little local anesthetic, you know, some lidocaine. And, uh, you know, he welded my face back together pretty much. And what was, what was scarier than the procedure itself, I just kind of bared down and dealt with it. So I'm laying on my side and, uh, you know, he's, he's basically gluing my face back together with this welding torch. My current wife was deployed with us then, and she was working out of the place that, that I was currently at. And now this is the second time that I've been injured. And uh, she's not happy about that at all. And I'm laying there and she walks into the treatment room and she is bullshit pissed at me. And I'm laying there like, oh, man, and actually, I, that was that was more scary than what I was doing with my face. I was like, oh, shit. The, the doc's like, hey, man, is she here with you? Because she does not look happy at you right now at all. I'm like, nah, man, can you like uh, protect me from her? Because she's probably going to kick my ass. You know, back to her, her and I met at our at our fight house. She's a she's a jujitsu practitioner. She's an MMA fighter. She's a tough chick. So I could just see in her eyes she was ready to give me a pretty good beating. Um, but you know, they, they 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 put it back together. Fortunately, there was a army reservist who was deployed who in his in his real world job is a plastic surgeon. So man, they put he put it back together. You know, I got a little scar here, but you can, you really can't even notice it. Um, yeah. yeah, man, and that was it. I love uh, I I was just going to say, I love how casual you are about these things. That's absolutely amazing. It's just, just, it's like it's, uh, you're so casual with it. It's it's like, yeah, some scars, fine. I was going to mention mention the other side about the fact that, generally speaking, guys aren't scared of other guys. They're scared of other guys' wives. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's cool. I can, I'll take you on, but your missus, I ain't going to, your missus yeah. is five foot one and nine stone, but you're still not going anywhere near it because you know she'll kick your ass. Yeah, yeah 100%. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so one of the things that, you know, I know we're, we're, we're pushing on time now, uh, Nick, one of the things quickly that I was just wanted to, to ask you or talk to you about was um, a scene on the 11th, what day is this, what was that, Friday? Friday. You had done Murph, you had done Murph, um, and that's a, it's a workout that I've done a few times. Um, how, do you, how do you find it? Do you find it brutally hard? Do you do it with a weighted vest? Yeah, so I, I wore my actual yeah. my actual kit. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It's um. Yeah, I've done it a few times. I did it once with um. A few American friends were doing it for American Memorial Day, so I got up at. I think I ended up doing it at like three o'clock in the morning here, so we all kind of synced up in time and we all kind of done it at the same time uh, oh, with those cool. guys. And it's uh, it's fucking such a horrible, horrible workout. Oh. Such a fucking brutal workout. Ali, have you have you ever done Murph, Ali? Never done the full Murph. No. Oh, nah, man, it's it's uh, that's uh, that's a motherfucker of a workout. Um, yeah. so yeah, it's a it's a, a cool workout to do on on you know those days. Um, but yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's one I think I, I think we should make Ali do it actually. But yeah, it's uh, it's cool, cool, cool to do it. And uh, what what sort of time are you heading? But are you looking at for that? Uh, you know, I didn't actually time myself this last time we did it. I almost felt like it was. I, I almost kind of cheated it. So I do run, right? I have, a, I, have a, I have a running leg and I do run almost out of spite because I was told early on that I would never be able to run again. So that every time I strap my running leg on, I think about those conversations that it was told to me. Um, you know, as an amputee, you know, I deal with the socket and the whole system for it to stay on. You know, it's an ongoing process as I, you know, if I gain weight, lose weight, if I'm in a hot environment, cold environment, um, you know, just, it, needs, it needs minor adjustments every now and then. I actually have an appointment tomorrow to get a new set up so the socket and the leg i've been using the last few weeks just it doesn't really fit right so i did the whole murph workout uh just on one leg so i, I didn't have my pros my prosthetic on and instead of doing the run i did uh i i, I busted out my concept two rower and i just set that up there for the That's one worse. mile on the front and the back it, it might be worse i, I, I couldn't tell so i didn't i didn't i didn't get my time it was it certainly wasn't my best um but kind of to our almost our opening point, we did it with a whole bunch of us did it. And my current company commander, he's, he's brand new to our unit. He did it with us. And um, he's like, man, we got done. We were just we were kind of just talking and reminiscing, you know, 9-11 and some other of our brothers that have fallen and stuff. And he looked over and he's like, hey, man, he's like about halfway through, I, I was really feeling sorry for myself. And then I looked over at you and you're just doing you're just hammering out literally one legged squats. And uh, I just I had nothing to feel bad for. So, you know, it allowed me to just kind of drive on that much you know, more aggressively. I'm like, that's oh, perfect. You know, that's great. If that happens, it's great. I'm here to I'm here to kick your ass. I'm here to kick everyone's ass. I'm not here as a cheerleader. I'm not here to motivate yeah. anybody. I'm here to get, get this work done. Um, so I finished second out of the crew. There were maybe like 20, 25 of us that did it. I was pretty pissed. My, my actual team leader on my detachment, he beat me, which, you know, he's, a, he's an animal. And he's also, the, he's a short little dude. He's like, he's like five, six. So he's got this little tiny range of motion. So I feel like it's cheating for his, uh, <laughs> his pulse and his push. I have to move my body like five times longer than he does. Uh, you know, I humbly accepted defeat. But uh, so, yeah, I didn't get the time, man. I do think that actually doing it on a ROA um, may have been worse than, yeah. than if I was running it. I, yeah. I, I always say, um, so when I was uh, boxing as an amateur I did a lot of rowing uh, for conditioning and on the concept too 
And doing roar sprints is one of the worst things you can ever do. It is fucking awful. But it gets you in incredible condition. Uh, but it is really hard. If you're, if you're you know, pushing hard on a roar, it is savagely hard. So, yeah, that might, that might be worse. I might actually have to try that at some point. It's just try and do morph, but with a, a, mile, yeah. a mile row instead. Uh, that might be something to try. Um, and pistol yeah. squats, One-legged pistol squats, so you can match up with it. I genuinely, this is, again, I cannot do pistol squats. I have to use I have to use a, an Olympic ring or something to steady me. I just can't. I, well, sorry. When I say I can't do it, I just haven't tried hard enough. That's what I should there say. There it is. Uh, there we go. But yeah, 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 yeah. I like it. Um, yeah, I just haven't tried enough. But um, but yeah, that's uh, we are pushing on every time. Like um, we'll start winding. Yeah, like like you get on with your day uh, over there, Nick. But um, hopefully that was a. Uh, 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 not a too bad uh, conversation, and uh, awesome. um, yeah, it was, yeah. It, was, it was really good fun for us. Um, you know, we, we say this all the time, but you know, we really like talking to military guys. Um, it's uh, it's always interesting to you know hear your guys' stories, and we always thank you guys. You know, we're not American, but we always thank you guys for for doing what you do, and uh, yeah, it's always a, always a pleasure for us. So thank you very yeah. much for for your service. 100%. And number one, Nick, again, thanks very much for jumping on when I reached out and agreed to come on. I uh, appreciate it. I know you said you'd listened to a few and decided crazily that you enjoyed it and you'd come and join Talk to Two Daft Scots. I appreciate you taking the time to do that. Um, just as well, friend, we want to find out more about you and to be inspired by your social media when they're feeling lazy. Where can they find you on the internet or social media? And we'll tag this in the video and in our show notes as well. Yeah, so um, ironically, my website is actually just about to go live here, maybe today or tomorrow. It's uh, machinenick.com. So machine is in machine, and then nick is in nick. Uh, .com, that's got all my, uh, all my social links on there and whatnot. And I, you know, I'm always very aggressively telling people, and you know, a lot of people take me up on this offer, which I'm super humbled and grateful for, you know, to reach out through any one of the socials or my email, which is all on there, uh, with questions military sf training you know whatever it is i, I make it an absolute point to get back to everybody uh, at some point um and just to wrap up with you guys man we talked about this earlier but you know i'm super just humbled and just grateful to come on here and talk to you guys you know i, I listened to a few episodes before um, i agreed to come on here man and you know the the greatest takeaway for me from doing this with you guys believe it or not is actually just being turned on to to uh, the Silly Goose Gang podcast. You know, I'm a fan for life, and I love what you guys are doing and your crazy accents, and it's probably the first time ever, at least in America, where uh, people can understand me more than whoever it is I'm talking with. So that's super cool you know, on my end. So I'm a fan for life, guys. I just hope you guys keep doing what you're doing, and uh, you know, I'm looking forward to the next episode. That's his very own Silly Goose Gang mug. We've got a section of mugs, so we'll get the Silly Goose Gang mug uh, sent out to you, Nick, if we can. I'll get your address off the yeah. offline, and we'll, uh, we'll get a Silly Goose Gang mug sent out to you after that. In the endorsement. Awesome. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's, yeah. That's, that seems hilarious to us that, uh, you know, you actually have listened and enjoyed them, so... You know, 2020 is a, is a crazy year, and uh, we are just... Uh, you know, as I was saying earlier on, you know, you get dealt these these uh, you know you get dealt a hand of cards, and you go, okay, 
we have nothing to do? Do we sit in the house and do nothing uh, because we can't work? Or do we, let's be constructive. What can we do? Let's start a podcast, man. Let's start speaking to interesting people. And here we are speaking to you. So, you know, you, you make you make do with your situation and, uh, you know, you can either sit and complain or you fucking get shit done. And uh, That's it. here we are. Here we are, man. So, yeah. Um, yeah, it was awesome. Uh, really enjoyed that conversation, man. Absolutely. Episode 41, Nick Levy, thank you so much for joining the Silly Goose Gang. Episode 41 in the can, done and dusty. The Silly Goose Gang Podcast.